0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Trump Watch Sussex. I'm Anne-Marie Angelo, and today I'm going to be talking with Emily Newhouse Dillingham. Emily is an attorney with the law firm of Arnold & Porter in Chicago, Illinois, And in addition to Emily's work in commercial litigation, uh, for the past decade, she has taken on pro bono work uh, in the area of immigration. Um, This includes asylum applications and more complex uh, full-scale immigration litigation matters, particularly since uh, the advent of the Trump administration in 2017. So thanks so much for joining us today, Emily. Thanks for having me. Uh, So we're going to be talking today uh, about the travel ban, which has also been called the Muslim ban, uh, undertaken by Donald Trump and the Trump administration. And then we'll also branch out to talk more broadly about some legal issues arising from the Trump administration's uh, recent immigration policy. So I'm going to jump right in, um, and I understand that you were involved um, as one of the attorneys who was present at O'Hare Airport in 2017 when the Muslim ban or the travel ban first came into effect. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your work there.
1: Sure. Uh, So in the days leading up to the issuance of the very first travel ban, there were rumblings that it was going to happen. And so... Uh, lawyers in sort of a grassroots effort around the city, and as it turns out around the nation, started emailing each other, figuring out what could be done if this did in fact happen. And ultimately someone put together a list of hundreds of emails of lawyers who were willing to, I guess, spring into action if this did actually happen. So the ban came down on a Saturday. I got an email uh, that afternoon and was in my car within an hour or so uh, getting myself to the airport to see what could be done. And it, it was sort of an astounding response. Uh, hundreds of lawyers showed up in addition to the thousands of other people who were there just to protest. Uh, but lawyers mobilized like nothing I've ever seen before. People showed up with laptops, with printers, with uh, mobile devices, with you know sort of mobile Wi-Fi options so that we could start interviewing people, so that we could start filing court pleadings if, if need be, which in fact turned out to be the case. Um, and so there was a lot of actual on the ground, immediate legal work that went on. And then as, the prog- as we realized this was gonna need to be a long-term sustainable effort, we had to build some infrastructure. So we had to have a, a website and a way for all of us to contact each other, we realized we needed a way to track people who were coming in on flights who were likely to be detained, um, but that information had to be protected. So we ended up having organizations who donated encrypted software where we could track people's flights without having that information released to the public. Uh, and a lot of it ended up being uh, sort of organizing that to make sure that the table was at the air at the O'Hare airport was staffed 24 hours a day, but also. That we had the right people in place to do the work. So we needed lawyers on the ground to do drafting, to do basic counseling of people coming through. Um, we needed translators and we needed translators who spoke multiple languages. Um, we needed people we needed lawyers with not just general interest in the process, but also with you know specific immigration training who knew how to handle this. Um, And all of that had to mobilize pretty quickly. And so I I was there the first day and then ended up becoming a shift leader after that and was there quite a few times uh, in the months that followed.
0: And you say in the months that followed. So uh, I understand uh, that obviously a a number of lawyers showed up in the immediate aftermath, Um, but can you explain sort of what happened in the ensuing months? Um, were people still traveling with expectations or hopes of getting into the United States? Or did you see people fewer and fewer people coming? So
1: a little bit of both. People did continue to travel. Obviously when the first ban was, was released, there were people who were quite literally in the air uh, who were turned away when they landed. People who were coming from one of the countries listed in the ban who didn't know whether they'd be able to enter the country or not. Um, Once legal challenges to the first ban took place, the administration, rather than than putting up a a legal fight, withdrew the first ban, issued the second ban. It suffered from most, if not all, of the same clause as the first ban, which is ultimately what courts held. Uh, So there were people still traveling, people who were so incredibly confused about what their rights were, what they'd be able to do if they'd be able to get into the country. And there was also a lot of mis- a lot of misinformation being spread to government government employees who were responsible for implementing the ban. So customs agents, TSA agents, weren't implementing things uniformly. And so even if people thought that they had done all the right things, taken all the right steps, gotten all the right paperwork, oftentimes they got here and were held for hours held for days turned away and put back on a plane and so the need to keep uh, an attorney presence at the airport continued for quite some time
0: can you explain just for a technical point um, how you became aware that there were potential clients waiting for you were they waiting on the um, customs side of the airport how did that work so i should
1: I should clarify that we never established an attorney-client relationship with anyone unless they explicitly asked us. So we were there to provide general advice, um, but unless someone entered into an actual, you know, engagement agreement with, with someone, we weren't actually their attorneys. We just knew that there were going to be people there with questions, and many of us came from firms who supported us being there, who frankly had You know insurance policies in place that that allowed us to do the work to be there without a a, a formal engagement letter um but we frankly we knew that there were going to be people coming from these countries because flights from those countries come to chicago each and every day multiple times a day many of these countries um have large immigrant population populations within the chicagoland area and so we knew it was likely if not definite that we were going to encounter these people and that
0: we're going to need help. And uh, as we know, the executive orders have received a number of legal challenges uh, since Trump has signed each of the three orders. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the cases that you've been involved with that have uh, challenged these executive orders.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my firm actually ended up filing two suits that we um ran in in parallel both in the DC District Court, so that's the trial court level within the federal court system, and we were within the District of Columbia. And we challenged uh, travel ban, I guess we we initially filed suit against the second version of the travel ban um, as a violation of due process rights and um, a number of other issues. Um, That this was actually uh, discrimination in the form of religious religious discrimination and that this went far beyond uh, presidential authority as given to him under um, immigration statutes, specifically the Immigration and Nationality Act.
0: And what was the outcome of that case? Uh, Unfortunately, not
1: much ended up happening as a result of our specific case. Uh, There were so many others pending. Uh, We we argued for a preliminary injunction uh, in the DC District Court. Uh, I argued that case along with several of my colleagues uh, from other organizations. And our judge, Tanya Chutkin, who is herself an immigrant, uh, was clearly pretty sympathetic to our our case. Um, But given that there were already other national stays in place um, prohibiting the ban from going into effect. She said that she wasn't going to uh, enter a ruling uh, unless and until the Supreme Court ruled in a way that would allow her to act. So ultimately our cases just get ended up getting put on hold.
0: Interesting. And uh, the Supreme Court, uh, as some of our listeners may know, did act at the end of June. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and the current status of this travel ban. Sure.
1: Uh, so the Supreme Court issued a ruling, um, which I found personally really disappointing, obviously, um, basically saying that the president does have fairly unlimited authority under the Immigration and Nationality Act to, to take the kind of action that he did, that um, he is allowed to ban entry um, from nationals of a specific country if there is a, 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 you know, a facially neutral national security reason for doing so. And so the Supreme Court majority held that, even considering the president's um, anti-Muslim statements and and similar statements made by other members of his administration, that the ban itself um, did contain a, a sufficiently reasoned um, facially neutral national security reason for doing so. And so on, 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 for that reason, they were going to uphold it. I think there was some light um, at the end of the tunnel. They did specify, uh, they called out the president's anti-Muslim tweets. Um, they were pretty specific in their, um, in their discussion of his anti-Muslim comments. And they did say, and I have it. I have the opinion in front of me. The issue before us is not whether to denounce the statements, which um, is as strong a statement as you're going to see from the Supreme Court on something mm-hmm. like that. And what the, they also said, we must consider not only the statements of a particular president, but also the authority of the presidency mm-hmm. itself. So I ultimately understand that they're looking down the road and saying, you know, if if we go ahead and check the immigration powers of one specific president that becomes problematic for future presidents that you can't make a rule based on the fact that you don't like one guy, um, but I, I do think the reasoning was wrong. I don't think that there was a sufficient uh, national security interest given, especially in light of all of the other statements that uh, Trump and his other uh, administration members have made, um, which is is the rationale that you see in. Um, Justice Sotomayor's
0: dissent. Interesting. Um, also interesting that they issued a, a, a sort of rep- reprimand to Trump himself.
1: They really uh, did. And, and again, that is not something you commonly see in a Supreme Court opinion. They actually went out of their way to point out other pro-Muslim and pro-other-faith statements made by past presidents. And they discussed that the, uh, the appropriate use of immigration authority by past presidents Um, including GW, and the fact that they singled out our current president, not by name, um, but by statement, uh, is is a pretty strong review. Mm.
0: That really suggests that in terms of the kind of history of uh, the Arab presence and the Muslim presence in the United States that we've really hit a turning point in terms of official policy if the Supreme Court itself is um, choosing to use a landmark case as a way of rebuking the current president and kind of calling in calling in up that history. Um,
1: I hope that's right and I, and I certainly hope that given that we have a, a conservative majority on the court right now uh, that's not likely to change. I think Brett Kavanaugh's appointment is, is fairly likely, and if not, there's gonna be someone else conservative you know, who fills Anthony Kennedy's seat. And so we're gonna have a conservative majority for the foreseeable future, but I'm hopeful given some of the language in this opinion that this isn't the kind of conservative that we're seeing as Trump's voter base, that this is more of a, a reasonable conservative viewpoint um, and that maybe we actually have turned a corner on some of these issues.
0: Thanks for that. Um... And as regards the the kinds of questions that you all raised in your case, um, having to do with freedom of religion and the constitutionality of that, uh, do you know whether any of that has really come into play in terms of in, ter- in terms of the Supreme Court case?
1: It really didn't get into that much of that. Um, the opinion certainly did touch on whether these statements were sufficient um, to, to demonstrate anti-Muslim animus. Um, but ultimately, they, that, that wasn't really the focus of the court's opinion. It was, again, the focus of Justice Sotomayor's dissent, uh, and it's touched on in Justice Breyer's dissent as well. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't really the focus.
0: Very interesting. Um, an interesting look at exactly what the implications are, I suppose, for this law and the, the fact that national security is still in. Uh, A matter of huge importance some sort of 17 years after September 11th, which many people kind of think of as a a new wave in terms of national security concerns in the U.S. I'd like to move on now to to think a little bit uh, about the bigger picture of Trump's immigration policy and in addition to this um, Muslim travel ban where we're headed um, and some of the legal challenges that Trump might be facing uh, with regard to his immigration policy. And I understand that you're involved in a couple of other cases, Emily. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about each of those and where they're at right now. So and hopefully our listeners can um, follow along and uh, and learn a bit more uh, after after our interview.
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. So obviously the Trump administration's immigration policies um, have only gotten worse since the travel ban. It's hard to believe that all of this has happened in such a a short time, Um, but there are several things going on. Uh, Of course, there's the zero tolerance policy for border crossing right now um, that's resulting in some pretty horrific family separation. Um, I am not personally involved in any of those cases, but I'm proud to say that my firm is. um, Tragically, there was an infant who died two weeks after being released from one of the detention facilities, Mm -hmm. we believe, as a result of inadequate medical care in that facility. So we brought suit against the government for that.
0: Can you explain, sorry, can you explain what's meant by zero tolerance?
1: Yes, sure. Um, So let me back up a little bit. Um, during the Obama administration and previous administrations, if you came across the border illegally, um, you weren't always simply turned back. Um, and you weren't, well, I shouldn't even say that, you weren't arrested. Um, it's a misdemeanor uh, to cross the border illegally, and it's not a crime at all if you do so for the purposes of seeking political asylum. And so, in previous, under previous administrations, when people crossed the border illegally, they were potentially put into criminal proceedings, but given that it was a misdemeanor, uh, sometimes they weren't, and they certainly um, weren't generally taken into custody uh, by the government, and they, they in, in most cases, certain weren't separated uh, from their children or from their parents. Uh, under Jeff Sessions, there's now this zero-tolerance policy that if you are um, found to have crossed the border illegally, again, even though, excuse me, doing so is just a misdemeanor, you are immediately taken into custody and, and put into criminal and deportation proceedings. Okay. So it's, it's an incredible waste of resources um, when you think about someone who might get a speeding ticket. Uh, it's the same level of crime. We don't take those people and immediately without any sort of due process, throw them in a jail cell, We don't separate them from their families. We don't take their children hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. We don't prohibit them from talking to each other. Hmm. Um, A significant
0: escalation of their power and their use of that power to hope to keep people from wanting to travel to the US. Exactly.
1: Uh, And of course, there's also been a significant change under Jeff Sessions as to what constitutes grounds for political asylum. Fleeing domestic violence in your home country is no longer a valid ground for seeking political asylum. That's a drastic change. Uh, Hmm. Seek fleeing gang violence is no longer considered uh, grounds for political asylum. Uh, And when you think about what the Trump administration has said about members of, of M13 in Mexico and the terms they've used to describe human beings to then say that there are people who are incredibly violent but you can't flee from them, that's not grounds for, for seeking asylum, and then if you come into the country, we're going to put you in criminal proceedings and send you back. It's It sort of boggles the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very proud to say that my firm has taken on some work in relation to all of that. Um, there's a lot of incredible and important work to be done. And then there are other policies that were still challenging. Um, most people still recall, because it was in fact only 10 months ago, um, the rescission of DACA, the, um, for 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 dreamers, children who were brought to the United States um, at a very young age, who have never really known another country as their home, um, who are now at risk of being deported, even though they have been granted legal status. Um, so many many people challenged in in the federal court system the the DACA decision. Those cases were sort of. Consolidated into three different places California, New York, and Maryland. And our firm handles the Maryland case. And we got the one uh, ruling that said that, in fact, there wasn't, there's was no problem with the rescission of DACA, um, that the administrative record that they had provided was sufficient, that they had given sufficient reasons. And so we are in the process of appealing that right now. Um, and so there's, there are a lot of challenges to that, that the, we believe the district court didn't really fully look at all of the evidence we gave them about how DACA actually provided people with real constitutionally protected benefits that gives them the right to work, to go to school, to travel, to establish a life here. And the government claims that those weren't constitutionally protected rights because uh, the government said that the program might not continue on indefinitely and into the future. Um, there's a an issue about whether it should have gone through a, a notice and comment period, and that sort of a, a nuanced legal issue. That's just a lot of different aspects of of the of the um, the administrative record that was put together. It was a one page letter from Jeff Sessions saying that he had considered it and he thinks that it was it, it was a bad idea. We've issued the program in the first place, and so they were rescinding it. Um, and so we are working very hard to challenge that. And we will have uh, an oral argument in front of the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, Virginia in the coming months.
0: And just uh, just for reference, is there a name for that case, if people wanted to look it up, up online later?
1: Casa de Maryland. Uh, and then there's, a, there's another policy that's been less covered in the news, I think, actually, just because the, the media has, only has time to cover so much. Uh, but the, the government, ICE specifically, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, has been targeting immigration activists, specifically undocumented immigration activists, for deportation. And that's been happening around the country. They've been surveilling immigration activists, people who have been speaking out against some of these policies, against the travel ban, against DACA, or the DACA rescission, targeting them, and even though they've been in the country for five, ten years um, they, and maybe they're actually here uh, lawfully, um, they're, they're now rounding them up for deportation, often with, with no notice, uh, no chance to get their affairs in order. They're essentially taken off the street and, and taken to a detention facility and then put on a plane. Uh, and so we are representing a man named Revy Rugbeer who has been living in the United States for decades. He uh, did have legal permanent resident status. He lost that as a result of a lot of incidents that I I won't get into now, but was granted an administrative stay of removal by the federal government back in 2007, which said, we know you technically are eligible to be deported. Um, We know that you are a community leader we know that you have a U.S. citizen wife and daughter. We know you're not only not a threat to the community, but in fact, you're an asset to the community. And so we're going to allow you to stay. So we're giving we're you a stay of your removal. And the government then renewed that three separate times. So Mr. Rocklear had been here um, lawfully, even though he had lost his legal permanent residence status, he had been here lawfully since 2007. And then um, part of his advocacy process, part of his activist process was to bring people with him to his um, immigration check-ins once the Trump administration took over, partly for support, partly to bear witness to what was going on. And once he started doing that, once he started organizing rallies in relation to some of his immigration appointments, that is when I stepped in um, started surveilling his house and and ultimately did swoop in one night um, and and told him that even though he had this stay of removal in place that they were going to exercise their discretion and and go ahead and and to have him deported uh, lawyers including our team wow. acted very quickly we we have a stay in place um, the government argues that that um, Again, this the same statute, the Immigration and Nationality Act, um, precludes courts from even reviewing this. That this is an executive branch issue. That they can do whatever they want um, if someone is is eligible to be deported, and that courts can't re, re, courts can't review that. And our position is, everyone has constitutional rights. Everyone has First Amendment rights. And if it hadn't been for his speaking out about. Trump administration immigration policies, they wouldn't have come for him, they wouldn't have surveilled him and his family, and they wouldn't have exercised their ability to remove him. And so we have a First Amendment claim mm-hmm. pending um, now with the Second Circuit.
0: Great. it's um, it, it, To me, it sounds like a sort of challenge between separation of powers and the executive branch claiming that it is separate, um, and, you know, a classic sort of um, separation between that and checks that's, and balances. Yeah, that's um, exactly
1: what it is. Um, and again, right, I mean, the crux of their argument is this is an executive branch power. We have authority to do this. This isn't something the courts have the power to review. But if you get into arguments of uh, constitutional violations and due process violations, then that does become something that's reviewable by a court. Uh, and it's certainly not an area where a court wants to be told there's nothing they can do. Um, that's certainly our hope here is that the court will say um, that, that if, if, if we don't act, then we're going down a, a very slippery slope of allowing the government to, to chill speech, to, to intimidate people into staying quiet by threatening some pretty horrific action. And, and at this point, it's what we've seen is related to the immigration context. Um, but if they're successful here, it, it's hard to say where it could go next. And so that's a pretty scary thought.
0: You mentioned uh, in passing that, you know, in the past 10 months, for instance, we've seen so many changes um, with regard to immigration uh, under Trump. And I was wondering if, if you have a sense, just sort of yourself in the day-to-day legal work that you're doing. Um The extent to which all of the things that uh, the Trump administration is doing, the extent to which people are challenging them and resisting them, uh, what's your sense of of how things are working on the ground and how quickly people are responding?
1: It's been incredible to me to see how fast people are responding to make sure each and every one of these um, decisions and actions by the Trump administration is being challenged. Um, I've never in my life and and likely never will again consider myself a first responder, Um, right? I don't know how to stitch someone up. I don't know how to stop someone from bleeding. Um, But I had, you know, there are lawyers out there with skills um, who know how to fight this and who mobilized in just an incredible way and on an incredible scale. And so for every case that, that our firm has, There are hundreds of others being handled by incredible organizations, by nonprofits, by uh, by other firms, you know, across the board. And it's been pretty pretty uplifting to see that.
0: Well, that's. That's I think a a good note for us to to close out on. Um, I wanna thank you so much for talking with me today um, and wish you a lot of luck uh, on these vitally important cases. Thanks for what you're doing to uh, keep the Trump administration in check. Uh, Thanks and thanks for joining me today.